Hello, welcome to another episode of Reconerd. I'm Will, vibrating at about 47 hertz. And I'm Leah, never well rested enough, which means that all those stories about World Sleep Day the other week were really irritating. We don't have any stories about bloodshot eyes or murderous rampages, so we're going to start off with something a little bit more soothing. Just, you know, a nice story about the steady drip, drip, drop of an April shower. Why water splashes? One of those nice occasions where we can pick up a physics story and actually make sense of it. Because it's real world physics. Things that actually happen in front of your eyes. Like a little dribble of tea comes out of your cup and lands splashing out. Apparently this is because tiny, tiny layers of air get caught under the liquid as it falls and causes a splashing behaviour. And you might be thinking, oh, splashes, that's a bit mundane, really. It's a bit run-of-the-mill. Everyone's seen one of those. But the scientists working at the University of Warwick have been modelling this on a very, very small scale. They're looking at microscopic layers of air, 50 times smaller than the breadth of a human hair that's trapped between the liquid as it's approaching a solid surface. And they describe this scale comparable to a one-centimetre layer of air stopping a tsunami wave spreading across a beach. Which is a bit much. So that layer of air, one micron in size, can obstruct a one millimetre drop of water 1,000 times its size. And Dr. Sprittles, a name that itself even sounds like a water filter, explaining that what happens to this minuscule layer of air during the superfast action has required the developing of a new theory capturing microscopic dynamics, factoring in different physical conditions such as liquid viscosity and air pressure, to predict whether the splash will or will not splash. Researchers have suggested some ways these findings might be applied, improving the quality of 3D printed products, being able to apply this to forensic applications, looking at blood drops, and possibly even applying it to climate science, understanding how water drops collide during the formation of clouds or estimating the quantity of gas being dragged into our oceans by rainfall. Dr Spittle's comments at the end of this, you would never expect a seemingly simple everyday event to exhibit such complexity. Clearly they've never met a quantum physicist. I expect the non-quantum physicists just avoid the quantum physicists and like deny their existence. Well, like they're sat across the canteen, just kind of gazing wondrously into their own sandwich. And if you start talking about your own research, oh, what do you do? Oh, I, I work with uh, you know, water. Oh, a real thing, poser. Or the quantum physicists come in and start saying, oh, we've made crystals that are in time. We've made time crystals. And everyone who's doing, you know, like bog standard thermodynamics and, and stuff is just like, we should probably actually, you know, talk with physicists before decrying them in such a public manner. But what are they going to do? Math this out of existence? I mean, I, I understand that the quantum physicists are doing very important work. I just don't understand what they're learning from it. Whereas this one, the research kinetic effects in dynamic wetting, hello, is... Uh, yeah, you can use it for CSI, you can use it for 3D printing, you can use it for understanding how clouds work. It's tangible progress. And I think it's important as a culture and a species that we acknowledge that there is 
a lot of beautiful and interesting things to be found in stuff that seems very dull. I mean, that's what we're here for, really. Speaking of dull stuff, what was your favourite class at school? The ones where I didn't have to finish my work? Actually, that was all of them. I remember my favourite classes were science, of course. My least favourite were English, because my English teacher, not so um, well equipped to lead an English class, I did have to help her out with spelling sometimes. That's awkward. That's extremely awkward. But in her defence, the Linguistic Society of America have published a new guideline on spelling practices looking back at the self-organisation and spelling of English suffixes by Christian Berg at the University of Oldenburg and Mark Aronoff from Stony Brook University, trying to figure out just how English wound up being the mess that it is. Now, actually, I'm not sure how well this is going to work for your English teacher's defence, because what this study is finding is that actually the spelling of the English language is self-organising to a certain point in a way which makes certain spellings basically signpost the purpose of the word they appear in. The example they've particularly focused on is the suffix O-U-S, found in words like nervous and hazardous, which turn nouns like nerve and hazard into adjectives. Like a gerund. I learned about that when training to be an English teacher. I'd never heard about them before. Thanks, Miss. So the significant thing about this O-U-S letter sequence is that historically these endings have been spelled O-S-E, O-W-S, I-S, O-W-S-E, Y-S, E-S, O-U-S-E, U-S and O-U-S. But these particular words, like nervous and hazardous, this category, have all over time converged on the O-U-S spelling, where other words, which end in the same sound but aren't adjectives, never use that ending. For example, service, genius or menace. And the authors do note that no one is or was in charge of English spelling. I suppose countries like Italy, France and Israel, where national academies oversee the written language, there is no English-speaking country that has a language academy. Although reading the internet, you would think some people worked for it. There's always someone who feels like they've got to come in and correct your spelling, and I will admit that that has been me. But mostly because if you're not spelling things right, that changes the meaning of what you're trying to communicate, and it doesn't actually help anyone out. Like from a noun to an adjective. Yeah, I mean, if you're using the wrong form of there or your, that can completely change the meaning of your sentence. So it's, it's important that you choose the right one. You can't say that, oh, the Linguistic Society of America are on my side, because they are not. Although it does remind me of having to explain to a classroom full of Korean children that I was trying to teach English, that no, no one invented English, contrary to Korean, which did have an author. I had to explain to them that, you know, well, we started off with a language here on this island, and then through a series of sequential invasions in and out, and colonising and trading over a couple of thousand years, and what you end up with is something like the English that we have today, which I think was first spoken on the coasts of Spain, and they look to me and they say, Teacher, English very strangey. Which is perfectly reasonable, because it is 
the maddest in a world of slightly mad languages. Another thing that is ever so slightly odd, but also kind of delightful, is research from the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University, wiggling mice. Very specifically, it has been wiggling fat mice. Doctors Alexis M. Stranahan and Megan E. McGee-Lawrence have been investigating... You can say jiggling. ...have been investigating the effect of whole body vibration by comparison to light walking exercise on a treadmill for its effects on body fat, insulin resistance and muscle and bone strength, modelling these things in fat mice. Now these are probably the kinds of machines that if you have been to a gym recently, they are going to be quite familiar. These kind of wobbling trundle plates that you stand on or do different poses on, they'll shake the fat right out of you. They used to be those belts that you'd strap around yourselves and then get waggled at. They're finding that by jiggling a mouse, tubby little squeaker, for 20 minutes daily, for three months, on the treadmill or on the vibrating platform, that has reduced fat deposits in the abdominal region, where it's you know, associated with all the visceral defects like in the heart and general health and the liver, and it's also helped strengthen the bones by increasing circulating levels of osteocalcin, which in turn leads to bone-producing cells called osteoblasts going around and strengthening bones, repairing damage, and altogether leading to a healthier mouse than one left unwiggled. They found, in fact, that the shaking and the light treadmill exercise, they specifically mention that distance they chose for the treadmill mice was two and a half miles, which would be a complete non-issue of a distance for a, a healthy, thinner mouse who would you know, run up to six miles a day without even noticing, really. But it's, it's a, a distance which will just about stretch the capabilities of the fat mice, but not enough to actually make them uncomfortable. And both this two and a half miles and the vibration makes a difference to, for example, insulin and blood sugar levels in their mice, which is, you know, if this extrapolates to humans, is very encouraging for diabetics who, for whatever reason, aren't able to do that much exercise. And McGee Lawrence does note at the end that there is so much more to obesity than weight. There's inflammation, there's metabolic changes, and all of these combined can really have a negative impact on your skeleton. And looking at fracture risk, for example, in people with type 2 diabetes, they have an increased fracture risk. That means that there's something going on where you are impacting the quality or the amount of bone. So by being able to, quote-unquote, exercise, to have the vibration in a way that is increasing your overall weight loss without jeopardizing bones by, say, stomping around on them. And it's not necessarily even weight loss in and of itself. There are effects both in living animal models and when you just vibrate tissue cultures, you can, you can produce some of the same metabolic results just in a tissue culture. In case you were worrying about the well-being of the mice, it is specifically noticed that the mice did not seem to mind when their cages were placed on the vibrating platform. They were still able to move around their usual cages freely, and levels of the rodent form of stress hormone cortisol did not increase. Something else, which is really, really good for you, is getting a good night's sleep, apparently. Psychologists at the University of Warwick have analysed the link between sleep and mental and physical well-being in households across the UK and have concluded that improving your sleep quality is as good for your health and happiness 
as winning £200,000 on the lottery. Like one million. Way too much. 25 quid on the pools. Ah, who cares? £200,000 is a nice little, that's a sweet point in the middle. It's a life-changing amount of money, but not enough to completely disrupt your way of life. So this comes from Dr. Nicole Tan in the Department of Psychology, who issued a general health questionnaire, which is, you know, a, an assessment of just, you know, well-being and healthiness, and found that people surveyed who reported positive improved sleep scored a two-point change in the GHQ, General Health Questionnaire, a result comparable to those recorded from patients completing an eight-week program of mindfulness cognitive therapy designed to improve their own psychological well-being. I'm not sure if that says more about the value of a good night's sleep or more about the waste of eight weeks in attending a mindfulness-based camp when you could feel just as good having a nice nap. The difference is, are you able to have a nice nap? As may have been suggested when we introduced ourselves, I do not sleep well. I sleep a lot, but I don't sleep well. And would I prefer a good night's sleep or £200,000? Have you ever had a good I, night's sleep? I mean... Have you ever had £200,000? I have had neither of those things. I think I think two hundred thousand pounds might help me sleep better. So if we're promoting that as a as a public health value, I would like to say right now that if Jeremy Hunt, health secretary, would like to improve public health by giving me two hundred thousand pounds so I can have a good night's sleep, just email us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com and I will give you my bank details to uh, transfer that across to me. Thanks, Jess. Well, here's the thing. I'm looking through this and I'm noting, is there a control? They've seen that people feel quite good having a nice nap. But did they give anyone £200,000? Because <laughs> if not, then they really need to do that. And again, email us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com to wire that money straight into our account, and we'll let you know how much happier we are. The next story is about the shape of the human nose. You might have noticed, looking at a variety of human faces, that human noses are quite variable, and some of those variations seem to correlate with our genetic background. So that might also come from a perspective of geographic distribution. Yes, if you have noticed that people whose ancestors came from Central Africa tend to have wider, flatter noses, and people whose ancestors came from the Mediterranean tend to have... Bold? Prominent? Aquiline? All these words describe my own nose. His, his family are Italian, um, so, you know, exactly. Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. With the triangular profile. The prominent proboscis. Of the Roman nose. I'm not sure if it counts as one of my most distinct features, but apparently the nose is one of humanity's most distinctive facial features. Well, if you compare us to, you know, all the other mammals who've just got, like, their whole face is their nose. You know, you take rodents, entire face funnels into the nose. Dogs, entire face is the nose. That's why they're so good at smelling. Pigs. Pigs, exactly. The exact nosiness of a human nose is a distinctive feature by comparison to 
you know, our other species who we coexist with. And the aforementioned geographic distribution seems to also align with climate and environment, with the author's note that previous studies suggest that people whose ancestors live in hot, humid places tend to have wider nostrils, and people whose ancestors came from colder, drier climates. But whether these differences arose in response to local climates or just due to chance was unknown. And this current study from Aslan Zaidi and Mark Shriver of Pennsylvania State finds that differences in nose shape across these geographic populations is greater than can be explained by chance alone. There is a correlation from those who evolved in warmer temperatures with greater absolute humidity, suggesting that climate was a driving factor in nasal evolution. However, it's not the only factor at play. Random genetic drift has got a significant component, and so does sexual selection. If your ancestors were part of a community that generally agreed big noses were sexy, your chances of having a big nose yourself are very much increased. Do you look at me sometimes and think, cool, look at the beak on that one? I'm usually distracted by something else. Thanks? You've got a very hairy face and it's a, a distinguishing feature. <laughs> I say that. You are very much the generic model of tall bearded man. I will take the compliment where I can find it. <laughs> You're my favourite version of it, but... Well, with that warming my heart and buoying my spirits, we can move on to our next story. I'm bad at compliments. Where, in what might be the most obvious piece of science we've had for a while, scientists are gauging how mood influences eating habits. You have a... I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Mean Girls, you'll remember the sequence where uh, Katie, the protagonist, is being introduced to the various cliques and dynamics of a high school cafeteria, and it includes the group of girls who eat their feelings. And we've all done it. One time or another, we've all gone, I feel terrible, I am going to eat some cake. And, accordingly, it's a useful field of research to investigate how our mood, when we're eating, influences how we eat. And you'd think it'd be easy enough to just, you know, ask people retrospectively, what did you eat, how did you feel, what was on your mind at the time, but Donna Sproit-Metz director of the M-Health Co-Laboratory at the USC Center for Economic Social Research, says that we really have no idea what people eat, because people lie. People don't remember. So what they've done instead is they have come up with something like a variation on a Fitbit, a little smart device that they can tag around people, which measures the acceleration of their hands, measures their heart rate, makes a rough estimate of the amount of calories entering that body, and also measures mood. Alongside this, the households that they're studying, they have thoroughly bugged. There are beacons which the wrist-worn devices will ping to give them an idea of where in the house their participants are, and there are microphones set up to record the conversations that are going on while everyone's at dinner, and get a sense of the mood of the room. As Sprout Metz says, I began thinking that we do know that behaviours affect eating, such as the attitudes around the table, whether or not you are angry or if you are depressed or you don't like what your mother said. Mood detection system they've got seems to be a quite handy piece of kit. 
because between five male and five female participants, the devices can gauge the following moods with a high rate of accuracy. Anger, 94.5%. Anxiety, 95.7%. Boredom, 97.5%. Happiness, 88.7%. And sadness, 88.9%. And the system is also equipped with some machine learning software, so it will refine its own results as it goes. And with all of this research in mind, there might be some way of figuring out not only what people eat and when they eat, how they feel when they eat, but how those attitudes, behaviours can be changed, possibly working towards a healthier outcome and people having a face full of smiles rather than a face full of chips. Which, I mean, to me, there's a lot of overlap. We move on to something else that might be good for your mood. Have you tried yoga? And that is the obvious response. This isn't quite the terminology they're using in the article, but I'm going to call it a medium to strong dose of yoga two or three times a week. Strong dose of yoga. Not any of that diluted stuff. Not any um, holistic yoga. No, we are down. not talking homeopathic yoga. We are talking Iyengar yoga. The study from New York was looking at a group of individuals with depressive disorders who were given a 12-week integrative health intervention. Some of them took the low dose of yoga, two classes a week. Some of them took the high dose of yoga, three classes a week. And according to the depression scores taken at the end of this 12-week period, uh, those who are taking the more intensive yoga sessions, those three-per-week classes, were scoring better on their depression scores than those who took the two classes a week. They described the intervention as three or two yoga classes per week and practicing coherent breathing at five breaths per minute. Which isn't very many breaths, that's one every 12 seconds. I mean, it's not mentioned what the, what the rest of the health intervention involved, whether... This is actually an intensive program that's involved, or you're just given a prescription to go to the gym and do some stretching, do some balancing. I think it is a thing that light exercise and guided meditation can be, you know, good for your overall health, good for your mental health. But, I mean, three times a week is a lot of yoga. I have got other things to do. This was only looking at 30 participants. I don't feel like this is quite enough to go and you know, start changing any practice guidelines yet. Editor-in-chief of the journal in which this is published, the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine, says that the practical findings for this integrative health intervention is that it worked for participants who are both on and off antidepressant medications, and for those time-pressed, with two times per week dose, also performing well. I mean, yoga twice a week is still quite a lot of yoga. I think I'd personally be hard-pressed to manage once a week. We don't manage once a week. Yeah, I'm talking about in, a, in theory, in the, in the alternate universe where I exercise. Is visualising good for yoga? Like, does visualising doing yoga make you a bit more yogic? I'm sure it does. I mean, we we talked about visualising other forms of exercise, making you better at them. So, why not yoga? You might have to actually do it once in a while. No. <laughs> well, from something that we can't agree on, let's move on to something that we do agree on. 
Because whilst you and I might not see eye to eye on Iyengar yoga... I don't even know what kind that is. I don't think it's the hot one. No, I'm fr pretty sure that's Bikram. So it's the cold yoga. Frozen yoga. Oh, oh, now that I can get behind. Yeah, we can get behind that a couple of times a week. Now we're moving on to research from Lund University. No publication bias found in climate change research. This is research that's prompted by the fact that lots of climate change sceptics will suggest that climate scientists might, you know, downplay results they have that, that don't agree with the overall theory of human-driven climate change. But in this large review of climate science, it seems a lot more like researchers are reporting the results they're getting rather than the results they want to tell you about. And when you're talking about a lot of climate science, we're looking at 120 research articles published in the field of climate research from 1997 through to 2013. A statistical analysis of a total of 1,154 experiments. And Johan Hollander, who is a researcher at Lund University's Faculty of Science in Sweden, says it's gratifying to see the scientific method is robust, and it is important to show that we can trust the results of climate research, even if more work is needed, about how these results are reported. Because they didn't find that experimental results were being omitted because they didn't fit the story. They did find quite a lot of selective reporting, where the big results are reported up front, Smaller results more often buried in amongst the depths of the of the papers, but this is how people report. It's how people report on literally everything from scientific literature all the way up to what Katie Price has been doing this week. I'm just going to follow up with this last quote here from Johan Hollander about the reporting. It is a major problem if politicians and other decision makers don't trust science or don't understand how scientists communicate their results. This can lead to important decisions not being taken or being given lower priority, he says. And this episode will be coming out on the 26th of March, 2017. So if you are listening to this in the future and people made poor choices... Uh, sorry... We knew. There are always, of course, some people who are more stubborn about these things. People whose attitude towards the information that's being shared with them can be skewed by, for example, their politics. So looking at a political divide on how people's personal politics affects their interpretations of these results would be interesting. So it's useful that someone's done that. Very useful. And they found that when the seasons are too hot or too cold... Democrats and Republicans are drawing very different conclusions. And this research, published by Jeremiah Ball of the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh in Springer's journal Climatic Change, was using two sources, data concerning people's beliefs about global warming and the social setting they find themselves in. This came from surveys from CBS, New York Times... These surveys were done in February and March of 2013 and February and May of 2014, which are moments when different regions of the US were experiencing temperatures at least 5 degrees Fahrenheit from the average temperature over the previous 30 years. That's both above and below the average. And this survey data is then cross-referenced with state-specific monthly temperature averages collected by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Centre for Environmental Information. 
so they can see what happens in states where they're going both unseasonably above and below the historical. Yeah, region. they can they can compare their responses in those different weather conditions. All of which points towards that when people who identify as Republicans in America, on the right of the political scale, are in a very cold snap in the middle of winter, they are more likely to turn around and say, you know, we can tell there's no global warming because I'm cold now. On the other hand, when it's unseasonably warm, these same people are just stubborn and more strident in their denial that global warming could possibly be a thing. Borders note that during more seasonal temperature conditions, there are some Republicans who will come around to the idea of it being possibly anthropogenic climate change, but that even in these seasonable expected temperatures, the Tea Party wing of Republican parties are much more likely to deny any kind of human-driven factor. But politics need not be all doom and gloom, because the Dreamers, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals policy, may have reduced depression in eligible individuals, according to new research from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Now you say it needn't be all bad, but as far as I'm aware, this policy is being cut down quite considerably by oh. the current administration. The DACA program essentially concerns children of undocumented immigrants who were brought into the US as children. It's enrolled 750,000 individuals what it does is it provides renewable temporary work permits so that these people who came to the US because their parents were going and they didn't really have much choice can actually continue to live their lives in the country where they've mostly grown up. Among eligible undocumented migrants, it has made a difference to their overall well-being. People eligible for the programme were 50% less likely to report symptoms with major depression after the policy was introduced. Lead researcher Athinda Benkataramani from the MGH Division of General Medicine says that it's well known that economic circumstances affect mental health. For example, if we were to have an extra $200,000, we might sleep well and be happy. £200,000 was point. what was mentioned in the sweet one, yeah. and that's more than $200,000. The exchange rate will get you. The DACA program increased access to the US labour market for these individuals and raised hopes for a better economic future. The large mental health benefits that we found likely reflect these positive changes. The researchers also note that as the surveys they conducted didn't directly ask for immigration status or enrolment for the DACA program, the estimates from their analysis probably understate the full impact of this on the, the mental health of people who were involved and people who were eligible for it. Let's hope that this is something that survives, thrives and goes on to provide economic and mental health benefits to generation after generation of people seeking a better life. So to round things out, let's have a couple of just nice fun things, nothing that might get political or... Conducting the Milgram experiment in Poland, psychologists they... show people still obey. They what? They repeated the infamous Milgram experiment. Do you know the one? Yeah, I know the one. I did, an, I did a whole AS level in psychology. If you're not aware of the Milgram experiment, this involved having participants apparently give electric shocks to a man who had openly disclosed that he had a heart condition. The electric shocks are administered remotely 
and they can hear the apparent other participant who was actually an actor apparently in the next room responding to the shocks and about halfway two-thirds of the way through the experiment going and then going very very quiet and one of the significant things i remember from learning about this experiment in my AS level psychology classes is that they would never get ethics clearance for that now so how well they only did half a milgram they did not go for the full milgram what they've done here in the research titled would you deliver an electric shock in 2015 is they have had people repeating that same experiment like you say someone is in another room they are being told they are delivering an electric shock remotely but they don't go for the full supposed lethality that comes with someone going quiet halfway through. And they do note that they are levels of electric shocks the participants believe they are administering are considerably lower than they were in the original experiment. All the same, the 80 participants, 40 men, 40 women, with an age range of 18 to 69, out of them, 90% of the people were willing to go to the highest level of shock in the experiment. One difference they did note is that people were somewhat less willing to deliver a shock to a woman compared to a man. They've yeah. got a small sample, so they're not necessarily able to draw any conclusions from that. I can only imagine they've got so small a sample, because if you've got 81 people, and suddenly the university starts asking, hey, why, why do you need this room and this buzzer and this soundtrack of someone going, ay, 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 ay. Well, I'm wondering if they're going to really follow through on replicating these and Milgram himself carried out experiments in context of on campus at um, I think it was Harvard where he was working at the time with experimenters in in white lab coats directing the experiment and they carried them out in office buildings with experiments in blue lab coats and found that obedience was a lot lower under those conditions because it doesn't look as you know official and sciencey yeah, blue coats are just a little passe. Well, blue coats are a little bit more working class, I think is probably the... Uh... To me, a blue coat sounds like a Butlins host. They've got me delivering high-dose electric shocks in Butlins, then this is not the future I signed up for. It's all a bit Clive Owen, if you know what I mean. Let's move away from the scary implications of what people are willing to believe to something that I can't quite believe myself. Having athletic trainers can benefit young football organisations. Maybe. Maybe. It's anecdotal. It's very specifically an anecdotal report that youth football organisations might benefit from the presence of a certified athletic trainer. I mean, they've... This is common sense. They've gone... Do you think youth sports persons might benefit from having professionals? They've gone, yeah, probably. Probably. I expect so. And with that in mind, I think it's time to wrap things up. But just before we leave you, we've got a few more quick stories to part ways with, such as using a sat-nav is found to actually kind of switch off parts of your brain that would otherwise help you find your way. I mean, I know for sure until I've been somewhere without the help of the sat-nav, I do not know the way. And without a sat-nav, you never will again. I mean, I... Can use maps. Satnav won't let you do that. Asking for directions? Satnav won't let you do that. What if I don't have a Satnav? A Satnav will find you. And can quantum theory explain why jokes are funny? 
God, I hope not. Three neutrinos walk into a bat. Oh no. I think. I'm not certain. That sound means we've come to the end of our episode. So if you do have any thoughts, feelings, comments, you can find us on Twitter at Eureka Nerdcast or email them to us at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, please tell your friends, give us likes, give us rates. Give us 200,000 pounds. Give us reviews. Those are all really helpful. So until next time, bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. Give me two hundred thousand pounds.